the most common title people addressed Jesus with in the Gospels was teacher, rabbi. So it's no surprise that one of the primary leadership gifts that Christ gives the church is the gift of teaching. So what is the spiritual gift of teaching? Well, Alan Hirsch describes the teacher gift this way. Teachers understand and explain. They are communicators of God's truth and wisdom. They help others remain rooted in the biblical narrative to better discern God's will for our lives today. Teachers guide others and help the community to remain faithful to Christ's teachings. Now, without the input of the other leadership gifts, teachers can fall into dogmatism or dry intellectualism. They may fail to see the personal or missional aspects of the church's ministry. So that's Hirsch's summary of the teaching gift. J.R. Woodward calls teachers light givers. And he says their primary concern is that the community inhabits the sacred text. I like that. He continues, teachers create a learning environment. Teachers don't create lessons or messages. They create learning environments where people immerse themselves in Scripture in order to be formed by them. That's powerful teaching. So the teaching gift doesn't mean uh, standing in front of crowds of people and giving a lecture. That's not necessarily how the teaching gift is activated and implemented in the church. In fact, the two primary ways teaching occurs in congregations is in one-on-one mentoring relationships and in small groups. But to better understand the general purpose and role of teaching in the church, I want to take a look at a few key insights that we gain from examining Jesus' teaching. And I'm going to look specifically at Matthew chapter 13, although there are many examples of this, but we don't have time to go through the entire uh, four Gospels. So we'll look at Matthew 13, but first just some general principles. What I see when I, when I read through the Gospels is much of Jesus' teaching, I would say most of Jesus' in-depth teaching, happens in the context of a small group. Twelve people, right? Small groups is not some contemporary church program. <laughs> this is something that Jesus did. Most, if almost all of his in-depth teaching occurred either on one-on-one relationships or in the context of small groups. Insight number two, much of Jesus' public teaching was storytelling. He was a master storyteller. And I don't know if you've ever experienced a a teacher who has the gift of storytelling. It's, It's amazing. Insight number three, Jesus did not usually tell people what to think. In fact, people are often begging him, just tell us what to think. (laughs) Just plainly tell us what we need to think. Jesus rarely tells people what to think. Almost all the time, Jesus' teaching challenges the way people currently think. Jesus' teaching almost exclusively provokes people into questioning the things they assume to be right and true and good. That's how Jesus teaches. Read through the Gospels if you don't believe me, please. Jesus is a very provocative teacher, and in some ways a very cryptic teacher. He's often accused of not teaching in clear ways that people understand. In fact, that's what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 13. So in Matthew chapter 13, it it begins 
with painting a picture. A large crowd has gathered around Jesus. And so Jesus gets into a boat and just pushes offshore a little bit, and he uses the water to amplify his voice so that everyone can hear what he's saying. And then, what does Jesus do when he starts speaking to this large crowd? Well, what he usually does, he tells a story. And he tells a story about a farmer who sows seeds on four different kinds of soil. We're not going to get into the details. Many of you are probably familiar with the the parable of the sower. Well, after he is done telling this story, later on the disciples come to Jesus privately and they say, Jesus, why are you always telling these stories that nobody understands? Like, why is that how you teach? Nobody understands what you're talking. Can you just can you just tell us what to think, right? Now, as we keep reading through the story in Matthew chapter 13, I hope you all go back and, and read it later today or this week. As we keep reading, what becomes clear is that the disciples are kind of pulling a, I have a friend routine. You know what I'm talking about? When someone comes up, so I have this friend. And uh, they're really struggling with this. It's not me. It's not me. I have this friend who has this problem. Now, what would you do? So there is no friend, you know, nine times out of ten in those situations. And Jesus discerns that the disciples are coming and they're saying, okay, so the crowds don't really understand what you're talking about. And Jesus discerns that they're really talking about themselves. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus doesn't even go there. He doesn't humiliate them. He just says, "Uh, let me unpack what I mean by this parable for you. And then he begins to to explain in in a fair amount of detail what he meant by sharing this parable of the sower. And the gist of it, although there's many layers to the meaning of most Jesus parables, one of the layers of meaning is this. Jesus is talking about spiritual understanding. In In Matthew 13, almost all of it is about spiritual understanding, or a great deal of it. And Jesus says to truly understand spiritual truth, the seed must be planted in your inner being. And that seed must take root in your inner being, and it must grow, and it must eventually bear fruit. Spiritual understanding that doesn't take root and grow and bear fruit isn't authentic spiritual understanding. The, the fruit that is born in our lives because of our spiritual understanding is external manifestation that other people can see. In fact, the fruit are things that benefit and bless other people. We become trees and people are like, oh, boy, that's a delicious fruit. We become a benefit and a blessing to other people when we are fruitful. Now, here's the thing. In order for spiritual understanding to bear fruit, there has to be some kind of shift, some kind of change, something new has to happen in us. Spiritual growth always bears fruit. It always manifests in our external lives somehow. What I find interesting is a great deal of church teaching focuses on staying the same. A great deal of church teaching will affirm what we already know. Or it will celebrate what we already understand. The tremendous amount of church teaching just focuses on that. And it can be quite ego-building. Hey, you get it. You're on the right team. You understand truth. Yay! Good for you. That's not how Jesus teaches. Like ever. 
Spiritual teaching always comes with a call to change, a call to repentance, a call to something new, a call to action. In fact, spiritual understanding that is only something we intellectually comprehend but does not take root in our lives and does not have some kind of external manifestation in the real world, tangible manifestation, it's not true spiritual understanding, Jesus is saying. So true spiritual teaching leads to understanding and true understanding leads to action. And this is where James takes us to a whole other level. James continues this this, prince, this is James, the brother of Jesus. He, he really got it. And in James, what does he say? Faith without works is dead. I mean, James is one of those blunt teachers, right? You say you have spiritual understanding, but it doesn't result in works? Dead. It's nothing. In James chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only. It doesn't matter if you listen. You know, oh yeah, that sounds great. No, that makes a lot of sense. And then you do nothing about it. James says, you're deceiving yourselves. You're deceiving yourselves. If you come to church week after week and you you hear a message of God and you do nothing about it, you're deceiving yourself if you think you're actually following the way of Jesus. If you do your devotions every morning or once a week and the Spirit of God communicates or nudges you to take action in some way and you do nothing, you're deceiving yourself. You're not actually following the way of Jesus. This is what James is saying here. And if you continue down that path of God continuing to reveal and communicate things to you and you do nothing about them, you become the kind of people Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. The disciples say, why do you speak to people in parables? And Jesus says this, starting verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because these people are the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. These people... You are always coming to church and listening to the message but never understanding. You are always going to the Bible and seeing the words with your eyes, but you are never perceiving. Your heart has grown callous. You hardly listen. You've closed your eyes and fallen asleep. Otherwise, you might see and hear and understand with your hearts. Then you would turn. You would shift. And I would heal you. Every time we hear a message of God and do nothing about it, every time we engage the Scriptures and the Spirit nudges us in some way and we do nothing, each time we grow a little more hard of hearing. Our spiritual sight grows increasingly dim. Our capacity to hear and understand God's truth diminishes like a muscle that atrophies. I mean, this is, this is, this is church stuff. Churches are dead for a reason, and this is, this is key. Listen to what else Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 13. Spiritual understanding, insight into the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. But it's not being given to these others. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they do have will be taken from them. A 
That's such an interesting phrase, and, and it's often, I hear people kind of chalk it up to, the, you know, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. That's not the context at all, though. In fact, that's not the intention of what Jesus is saying. In fact, the logic is, is really difficult to understand in the second part of that teaching. Those who have nothing, even what they do have will be taken away. Even what they do have, they have nothing, but even what they do have will be taken away. What's going on? I, when I went to school in math, if Johnny has zero apples, you cannot take two apples away from Johnny. So what is Jesus talking about here? Those who have will be given even more. What's the context? Jesus is talking about spiritual understanding. Spiritual insight. Now remember, Jesus is saying spiritual understanding is not some intellectual comprehension of an idea. Spiritual understanding is a truth that has taken root in our beings and is made manifest in our lives in some tangible way. That's spiritual understanding. And people who have spiritual understanding, more will be given to them. People have heard the message, yet it has not taken root in their lives and is not made manifest in some tangible way. Even what they do have will be taken away from them. What is that? Their capacity to receive spiritual understanding. Even that will be taken from them. I mean, that explains a lot to me. That explains how people can go to church their whole lives and seem to have very little spiritual understanding. Doesn't that explain it? People who have memorized the Bible, yet you hear the things they say, and I'm not going to start talking about major celebrity pastors or anything like that, but, but you hear the things that come out of their face and you wonder, how, how is it that you, have, you read the Bible clearly, because half of what you say is quoting scripture, yet it feels like you have zero spiritual understanding at all. And in those moments, I always try and check myself, maybe, maybe I'm just in a very judgmental space right now, and that's often true. I mean, I have an ego like everybody else, but, but there are some times when you just have to shake your head. How is it that this person has immersed themselves in Scripture yet seems to have zero compassion, love, grace? The person who receives messages from God and puts it into practice, Jesus says, we're going to give you more. You're just going to keep, you're just going to continue. The flow is going to continue to pour into your life. Those of you who receive messages of God, don't put it into action. The flow ceases. You see, God says, God says through the prophet Isaiah, so many interesting things. One of the things is, my word will not go out from me and return to me void. My message will not go out from me into your life and return to me empty. It will accomplish the purpose through which it was intended. When God speaks into your life and it doesn't produce the results that God intends, God will not be mocked. God isn't like, oh, okay, well, I'll just give you a new insight. No! You're cut off from the flow of spiritual insight and understanding until you apply what God has revealed to you. Now, I've I've discerned that there are natural, there's a natural rhythm in the physical universe, there's a natural rhythm in the spiritual universe. Dormancy is required. There are seasons where you just need to, you know, Sabbath. God embeds that in in the very beginning of the rhythm of life in relationship with God. There are times to rest. No action, no understanding, nothing. Just rest. Just be. But most of the time when my riverbed becomes dry and empty of spiritual understanding and insight, 
Most of the time, it's because God has revealed something to me and I have not applied it in my life. And God, God will not reveal something new and fresh to me until I go back and put that into practice. I'm convinced of that. I could be wrong. I'm wrong about so many things, but I'm, I'm fairly convinced of that spiritual principle. The only way to reopen that flow of divine insight and wisdom and understanding into your life is to go back, figure out where was, what was it that God revealed to me that I'm not putting into practice. Be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. For anyone who hears the message but does not carry it out and apply it is like a person who looks in the mirror and after observing herself goes away and immediately forgets what she looks like. That's fascinating to me. I mean, James is comparing insight and wisdom and understanding of God's message to a mirror. A true moment of enlightenment is, is when we, we see who we really are. You see your true self. You see that who you are is in Christ. Who you truly are is the image of God. Who you really are is, is that, that dynamic, that part of you, that aspect of you that is one with the Spirit. And in that moment of, of God communicating to you, whether through a message or through a book or through reading Scripture or a prayer or whatever, there's many, many ways that the Spirit of God communicates to you. But in that moment, you get a glimpse of who you really are. There's always a call to action. There's always a call to live out. What it, how does Ephesians 4 start? Live worthy of the calling. Live in a manner worthy of the calling. So there's our true identity, but we still have to fulfill, walk, live out our calling. So we, catch, we have these moments where we catch a glimpse of who we really are, and then if we don't put into practice our true identity, it's like we, we walk away and we forget what we saw in the mirror. We forget who we truly are. James continues, But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom... It's all about freedom. And continues to do so. Not being a forgetful here, but an effective doer, that person will be blessed in what they do. So when you catch these moments, whether it's spending time in Scripture or a podcast, whatever it is, and you catch this moment of spiritual insight coming into your life, you need to continue to, to reflect on that. You need to stay with that. Not just sort of, oh, that was great. What a profound insight. And then forget about it and leave. You need to stay with that for days, for weeks, until it takes root in your being and starts to manifest in your life in practical ways. When you do that, you live in freedom. That's a good thing. And you will be blessed in what you do. I mean, this, this isn't about guilting and shaming and, and beating you over the head. God's moments of speaking into your life are always an invitation to something better. Always an invitation to something better. Primarily freedom. Freedom, God's freedom is always better than whatever it is we are caught up in. So what does this have to do with our teachers here? Well, true spiritual teachers are not communicators of information. They are facilitators of transformation. They know that information without application is entertainment. Let's talk about how we identify our teachers. How do you know if you or someone you love might be a teacher? Well, you might be a teacher if you are drawn to the Bible to understand and apply biblical truths, and you desire to help other people understand biblical truths. You might be a teacher if you are often concerned with logic 
order, process, development. And you have a gift for outlining comprehensive curricula and systems. I'm not going to look at anyone in particular, but we clearly have some teachers in our midst. You might be a teacher if you lean toward proven systems to get the job done versus novel solutions. You often ask tough questions that can lead to greater clarity for everyone. You help operationalize the dreams and visions of apostles and prophets. And this is so key. As wonderful as apostles and prophets are, they require people like teachers to help them get into the details of how are we actually going to do this, how is this going to work. Big picture people without fine detail people can be frustrating and somewhat useless, right? You might be a teacher if you like to see established track records of success before doing something different. Teachers sometimes are prone to say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And a lot of the times they're right. <laughs> you might be a teacher if you make an excellent coach or mentor. Now, here are some signs of immaturity in teachers. In their hunt for clarity, they can offend people with their bluntness. Sometimes immature teachers lack empathy. They can be so enamored with order that they're unwilling to endure any kind of ambiguity. And when the church becomes a movement in the world, ambiguity is bound to occur. They can get so attached to stability that they're unwilling to take risks or try something new. In their desire to know the truth and make truth known, they can end up making faith overly cerebral. Elevating head knowledge above emotional experience and practice. Teachers are the most prone of all the gifts to become Pharisees. Assuming that they know the right things and they do the right things. And they can set up certain knowledge and behavior requirements as litmus tests for being a real Christian. Or to measure whether someone is serious about following the way of Jesus. In their desire to teach and train people, they have a tendency to keep people in the nest too long. Constantly nervous that, oh, they're just not ready. They need one more training course or one more seminar or one more this or that. When in senior leadership roles, they can become sermon machines, assuming the main thing the church needs is more teaching. Like shepherd pastors, teachers like to be needed. While shepherd pastors like to be needed for the care and help they provide, teachers like to be needed for their wisdom and insight. And finally, they can become devil's advocates with their questions about new ideas, creating a wet blanket effect on leadership teams. Now again, I'm taking all, none of this is coming from me, uh, but, I, but I, think it's pretty, I think it's pretty insightful. 